You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Small things can cause big trouble. I know of the Tri-Delta sororities having their initiation tonight. Yeah, felt the Delta. And we just might be able to watch. They say you've got to start at the bottom to get to the top. And they're right. Oh, they say you shouldn't stick your nose where it doesn't belong. <laughs> and they're right. Busted. They say where there's smoke, there's fire. And they're right. Babs, have a cocktail. They say curiosity killed the cat. And they're right. They say good things come in small packages. No way out. It's a fine dying. But this time, they're wrong. You've got to give the devil his due. Sorority babes. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Recently, I had the good fortune of speaking to Mr. David Dakota about the upcoming re-release of his film on Blu-ray, the film being Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolorama. Definitely one of my favorite films. Definitely one of the best film titles that has ever been produced. And yeah, we talked a little bit about that and how the film came about. Also, the extras that are on this new Blu-ray release. We also spoke a little bit about Little Miss Innocence, the remake of the film that he did in 1987, which we spoke about in the Death Game episode a few months ago with Professor Nicholas Schlegel. And we also spoke about some of his more recent things, including A Talking Cat. So be sure to check out this episode. I hope that you enjoy the interview. It was a real pleasure talking to Mr. Dakota. And be sure to pick up the Blu-ray of Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama, available now. My name is David Dakota, and I'm a cult B-movie director. I've been in the business... Technically, I started as an exhibitor when I was 15 years old. I was working in the movie theaters in Portland, Oregon as a candy counter boy and a uh, projectionist. And then I moved to Los Angeles when I was 18 and started working for Roger Corman as a production assistant and also as a projectionist and kind of an all-around slave boy. I did every single type of job at Roger Corman's. And some of my cohorts there were James Cameron and Bill Paxton and Robert England and Zalman King. So we were all at the Corman, Roger Corman Studios in Venice uh, making uh, a crazy horror movie. What kind of stuff were you working on those days? I was uh, on staff at the studio, and I helped in the special effects for the movie Escape from New York. And uh, then uh, the movie, the big movie we shot, well, the big movie in quotes, big, was uh, Galaxy of Terror, and then a little bit on Forbidden World, and uh, a movie called Firecracker, and a film called... Smokey Bites the Dust. So that was about eight months of working at uh, Roger Corman Studio. And how did you work your way up to actually directing stuff? I worked as a production assistant craft service guy. I worked my way through the camera department, uh, grip electrical department, sound, post-production. I basically learned while I earned, and I worked in every possible department and uh, raised enough money 
to uh, get my first uh, horror movie going when I was 24. So I worked in every uh, type of industry, everything from, you know, horror movies to commercials to even music videos, adult videos. I was in every single possible uh, subgenre of, uh, of movies so, and television and commercials. So I, I did a little bit of everything. I worked in labs. I worked at drive-in theaters. I was always connected to the movies in some way. I guess I should ask, was directing kind of your ultimate goal, or what was your ultimate goal when you were doing all these different jobs? My ultimate goal was I wanted to own a, a movie distribution company because I had been in the exhibition business and really loved selling and showing movies and whipping up a spell with promotions and things like that, trying to get people to go to the film. So I was more of a fan, but you know, really wanted to run my own company. Directing, I started to like when I was a craft service guy because I saw in some cases when I was working with directors like Ken Russell, I could see how great the job could be. And then there were other directors who were working as 25-hour days and it was a nightmare. So I thought, well, if I'm going to make movies, I should probably direct them as well because I'm the most affordable director I know. Can you tell me about the first films that you directed? Uh, like I said, I worked uh, briefly about a three-year period directing adult movies from the age of 21 to 24, and that's what got me the money to get my first horror movie going, Dream Maniac, which I partnered with Charles Band on, um, and it was sort of a female Freddy Krueger-type succubus film. It was released through uh, Wizard Video, Empire Pictures at the time, uh, Lightning Video, Vestron, and that was the first movie. And the VHS market was a very big market back then, and there were 30,000 video stars, and they all needed new movies on the shelf, so uh, we could not make enough movies. So, And the horror genre is always the <clears throat> genre that was the kind of genre where you didn't need to have stars in the movie for it to be successful. You had to have a clever title, a lot of scares, uh, a lot of sexy women, and a really cool poster. And that's what really made those movies jump off the shelf and got people to rent them. Uh, it wasn't that there was some, you know, uh, half-baked movie star in there someplace. So uh, we did really uh, well with horror movies. So that's somewhat of the genre we stayed with. Those movies also exported well out of the United States and various territories. So so I stuck with that and uh, started a relationship with Charles Band. And uh, right from Dream Maniac, I went to films like Creepazoids and then on to Sorority Babes and 125 movies later, still making the same kind of movies. It's, it hasn't changed in three decades. <laughs> One of your adult ventures was New Wave Hustlers. Was that kind of a play on the New Wave Hookers films? It was. It was a, um, I, I, me being clever. New Wave Hookers at the time was released by my friend Russ Hampshire at BCA. I was pretty much providing movies to every single label back then and had a pretty good relationship with the BCA. So I thought I would do sort of a gay spin on it. And uh, so I did New Wave Hustlers. But I shot the whole movie in six hours, and it wasn't very good. And uh, so Russ said, nah, that's the pass on this one. So I set it up with my uh, my friend Sal over at um, LA Video, and uh, he took it off our hands, and uh, we made some money on it. But that was back in the day when you could just really, really make a lot of money in that area, and that's ultimately uh, the, the business that I, I – I didn't really necessarily not like it. It's just, it was sort of a stepping stone into something a little bit more legit. But there was a lot of money to be had, so I had to learn while I earned there as well. When it came to Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama, what came first with that? You talked about how you might sell a movie on a poster idea or maybe a title. I mean, the title of the film is just amazing, and the poster is pretty darn great, too. What came first? What was your inspiration for that? I was seeing dailies, which is the footage we shot the previous day on Creepazoids, 
and we were looking at the dailies and Charlie uh, Band, who was the financier and boss, my boss at the time, saw uh, the dailies and thought it looked pretty good. It's the second movie I did for him. And so he offered me a 10 picture deal and then uh, said, why don't you do this movie here that I pre-sold called The Imp? And it was a very exotic piece of art, very much, uh, very mystical and creepy and dark and very much like out of a comic book. So he said, here, take the poster, the title is The Imp, get a script written. I need you to make this movie really quickly because I have to deliver it at the Milan Film Festival. And or the, or what was called MIFED, which was the next to Cannes, was sort of the biggest film market in the world at that time for this type of movie. So um, we had to move quickly. So we um, came up with a storyline and uh, hired a writer, Sergei Hontanet. And we were in a little bit of a silly mood at that time because there were a lot of films like reanimator and return of the living dead around that time that were a little over the top funny didn't take themselves too seriously but delivered the scares and the gore of the girls so we thought we would find we were me and my producing partner at the time john schuweiler were always sort of zany madcaps anyways it was anything for a laugh and we thought well let's just go crazy with this idea and we put the imp in a bowling trophy. We turned it into a sorority initiation. We set it in a bowling alley and you know, got a terrific script from Sergey. And we start casting the girls. And Linnea, who had just done Return of Living Dead and Creepazoids for me, came on. I hired a Michelle Bauer from Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. I hired Bring Stevens from Slumber Party Massacre, Robin Stilley from Slumber Party Massacre, Hal Havens from Night of the Demons, and... Carla Barron from Halloween Night, Buck Flower from all those John Carpenter movies. So it was a pretty much an all-genre cast, and we all got in a bunch of cars and drove down to San Diego County and camped out there and shot the movie at night in a bowling alley for two weeks. I have to say, Robin Rochelle's performance, she is she just owns the film in so many moments. She What was she like to work with? She came into audition, and I looked at her and I said, you look really familiar. I said, uh, were you in Slumber Party Massacre? And she goes, you saw that movie? I said, hell yes, I saw that movie. You were great in it. And I said, you want to be in this movie? And she said, absolutely, because she was very tall, very striking with a blonde bob haircut. She reminded me of a younger uh, Sybil Danning. But she had just finished number one with The Bullet with Billy D. Williams over at Cannon. And uh, she was working quite a bit. She was a fun girl. I mean, she had a child, but she we had fun down in uh, San Diego County. She was a lovely girl, and she just kind of relished the role. I mean, it was sexy, but she didn't have to get naked. She was powerful. She was tough. She got to spank uh, Michelle Bauer and Brink Stevens, which seems to be every young boy's fantasy at the time. So, uh, uh, But she got into it. She's beautiful, photographs like a million dollars, and uh, was great to work with. But sadly, such a tragedy um, that she suffered from a little depression and there was some things going on in her life. And uh, sadly, Robin Stilley, who was a, a SAG member at the time and it was a non-union movie, went by the name of her middle name is Rochelle. So she went by Robin Rochelle. But she had committed suicide. It was really a trial. It was very shocking. It was a number of years later. But it's not like we all kept in touch. I mean, this is before cell phones and Internet and email and everything. And people, you know, you finish a movie, you all go your separate ways. And I always kept her in mind. But she was terrific. She was a lovely girl. and um, But everybody was great in that. I mean, that's the movie uh, Linnea Quigley. It's her favorite character, Spider, because uh, she's, you know, she saves the day at the end. I mean, these are strong female characters. And I try to turn the genre on its ear and try to make the, the boys sort of the innocents who needed to be protected and the girls were strong and made shit happen and, and saved the day. So 
And I had done uh, just that one movie with Linnea, although I did meet meet her on a short film that I didn't direct, but uh, we met on that. And she was very sweet. And she, I said, no, no, you're not going to get naked in this one, but I want you to be sexy. And she doesn't. She was very open minded about the the nudity, and she didn't really care. But she loved the fact that she didn't have to get naked in this one. But that's a tough role, and we really worked hard, and she did a good job. And um, but no, that whole cast was great. I was really really pleased with the cast. How long was the shoot? The shoot was a total of 14 days. The formula back in those days, because this is back in the days of 35 millimeter and equipment rentals and generators and, you know, lots of vendors, you would do a two six-day weeks. So basically you would get a three-day rental or a 2.5-day rental per week. And then for the sync sound cameras, that was the bigger cameras. So we shot that for two weeks. We did two days in L.A. first at a, at a house, the sorority house. And then we we all went to uh, San Diego for another probably 10 days with that Sunday off. And then we took the week off and we shot uh, for two days at my offices with a with a wild airy with a, a more uh, affordable camera. And we shot all the a lot of the exterior interiors. We shot a lot of the. We shot a lot of uh, pickup shots and things like that. And, and so basically it was a total of 14 days. But it was short days because we couldn't really – we had to shoot at the bowling alley at night. So we had to do something like a – I think it was like a – I think it closed at 10 p.m. So we kind of started lighting at 9 and we had to be out of there by 8 a.m. So we were all nocturnal. It was uh, – night shoots are never fun. I, I had worked on the, the movie Angel, the Donna Wilkes um, – Cliff Gorman movie about Catholic high school girl by day, hooker by night. I was the craft service guy in that. I'm actually in the movie as well. That was a 24-day shoot. But uh, we had a really good producer, Don Borchers, and how he scheduled that was he – we started at 8 in the morning, and then every single day for 24 days, he moved the call time a half an hour. So we were able to work ourselves into nights more organically and less you – know, because when you immediately switch over to nights – it's impossible. Your body clock is not prepared for it. So on that movie, it worked really well. On ours, we had to go right to nights because that's the only time the bowling alley was going to be available to us. Can you tell me uh, a little bit more about the voice of the imp? The voice on the set was the uh, operator, which is the man who created the um, the puppet, Craig Caton. Craig Caton Largent, who had just been working at Boss Films on Ghostbusters. and uh, But he was an old friend from Portland, Oregon, who had moved to Los Angeles. And so he created it for me. And some trailers, uh, when you hear it, you'll hear it. That's like process. That was just for the trailer because the movie wasn't finished yet. Kenneth J. Hall, who's a writer that I met through Fred Olin Ray's ex-girlfriend, Miriam Pricell, who used to be his editor, she introduced me to Kenneth J. Hall, who was getting ready to do um, Evil Spawn. And uh, we became fast friends. He's very funny. And he suggested uh, Dookie Flyswatter for The Voice. And I did not know who that was. He had a band called Haunted Garage. And uh, so we went to uh, Dookie and I said, could you come in for an hour and do The Voice of the Imp for me? He was happy to do so. So it was an interesting choice, although it was never intended to be as funky and wild and as ghetto as uh, Dookie's interpretation. But he did, people seem to love that character. And he added a few extra lines here and there just to be funny because my uh, Dookie's also a, a writer. So it was pretty silly. But that was just – that was thanks to Ken Hall. Was, he introduced me to him. So can you clear this up? Dookie Flyswatter, not the same person as Michael Sonnier? No, yeah. Michael Sonnier and Dookie are the same. Michael Sonny is a writer uh, and an actor, and Dookie Flyswatter is his rock and roll persona. 
Yeah, so it's the same person, but he just, it's a different vibe, and that's just, that was what you did in the 80s. You all had a, you know, you had a, a rock and roll name, and then when you had a band, so, and that was his. I never really made the connection until just recently that he was, what, what was a Mengele in Surf Nazis Must Die. He sure was Mengele. Matter of fact, that's how he was in that. He was also in, he might have been in the Tomb or Armor Response or one of those Fred Olin Ray movies, because I think that's how Ken met him. Um, and, uh, but oh yeah, he wasn't surf Nazis must die. I tell you that this cast was an all genre cast. And the, what was nice about this uh, movie also is the lead uh, kid, Andras Jones, that was his very first movie. He was 18 years old. And, um, I hired him on the spot. He came into audition and he was terrific. 18 years old. And we did the movie. We had a great time. He was so talented and beautiful and just a great kid. I just knew he was going to be a star, but I didn't realize how quickly because right after I did the movie, he was cast as one of the leads in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. So uh, he really took off pretty quick, and um, he's terrific in that movie, and he's always been terrific. And he's a dear friend. I, whenever he's in, in L.A., uh, we have lunch. So he's, uh, he's still a dear friend. He, uh, um, he's uh, in, in the radio business. Uh, his um, his um, radio is called Radio 8-Ball uh, on the Internet, and he's, got, he's, a, he's a character. He's an amazing guy, amazing. He does a little bit of acting still, but uh, he's – He's a good guy, so I'm really proud of him. And Hal Havens is uh, uh, doing acting, uh, teaching, right? teaching acting now, but he worked all the time. So it was an interesting, an interesting cast. I mean, we all kind of, you know, lived in a little hotel in, in San Diego County. I think we were in San Marcos or someplace like that. And I just, the whole thing was a blur to me, but uh, it worked out pretty well. You know, nobody would think that 30 years later that we would stumble across the original camera neg of, the, of this movie in some in some warehouse in the San Fernando Valley. And so right when I found, right when Charlie and his team found the negative, I had suggested, well, if you got the original negative, you should do it. If, you know, this is a popular film because, you know, the film came out obviously on VHS, but it also did the rounds theatrically. The film played on 42nd street, sorority babes. It also uh, played in uh, 20 different film markets around the country. They put 10 prints in each city and, it had to put like eight month or nine month release uh, theatrically during the solicitation of the VHS uh, release, which was, um, you know, it was back when there were 30,000 video stores. So this type of film was pretty popular. So um, because of that, the film got picked up by the USA network for uh, a thing they did uh, late night called USA Up All Night. And I think that's where most people saw the movie. And that was a basic cable channel. So you couldn't have any nudity. So it was like 60-minute movie with like 60 minutes of commercials. So that's where people really caught on to the whole sorority babes thing. And the, over the years, um, the DVD came out. But we were all – we were stuck, unfortunately, with a very mediocre um, one-inch master that was kind of dark and murky. And also the, the music on Real 7 was gone, which was the climax of the movie. We don't know how that happened. But uh, sadly, it was uh, – it went out that way, but we found that original music and we remixed the movie in 5.1. So not only did we scan the original camera negative in 2K and do a full restoration and color correction, but there's a 5.1 mix with the proper music and a commentary track on it. Uh, remarkably, um, a two-hour and 15-minute making of. It's, a, it's a, a disc where literally the uh, company that was um, authoring the Blu-ray disc said you have no more room on this disc so, because we have we have the two and a half two hour 50 minute making of plus I, I do a commentary on the two hour and 50 minute making of so I basically 
I felt that the fans, they wanted to know all the stories and I did everything I could remember. And a lot of those images really triggered memories, good memories and bad memories. And uh, so we, it's everything you'd ever want to know about sorority babes is on this Blu-ray. So I suggest people grab it now at direct, uh, at uh, fullmoondirect.com because it's, it's, it's going to sell, it's going to sell well because it's, it's quite. It never looked this good because it, it it was really beautifully shot by a man named Stephen Ashley Blake, who had been uh, David Pryor's cameraman over at AIP for many many years, and David Winter's cameraman. So I hired him on this. He did a bang up job. So I'm very uh, very happy with this Blu-ray. It's not one of those fake Blu-rays where they just use some old master and just call it a Blu-ray. This is the original camera negative. So I'm really happy with it. Was the making of done then or was it done now? Very interesting story because um, a very good friend of mine, Bob Langer, who is now head of marketing over at Full Moon, um, I met him many, many years ago. And his brother, Ralph, uh, was uh, taught film in high school in Pittsburgh. And he would come out every summer and videotape, get on the set of an independent movie and do some videotaping just to show his students back in Pittsburgh how B-movies are made in Hollywood. So Ralph just did that footage just for his own use. He stumbled across all of that original making of footage that he shot and dumped it onto DVD. I looked at it and I hadn't seen it since for 30 years. And I thought this could be – I think it's never been released before. No one has ever seen this except his film students – and just a handful of people on the on the set, and he documented the entire process. I mean, I don't think he was there for every day of shooting, maybe a half a dozen days, but he got some great footage. I mean, all of our stunt work prepared and all of our fire body burns, all of our makeup effects. He was able to cover all of this. So Charlie Band's calling this the first video zone ever created. The original intention was to do like a 20-minute video zone. And I thought, well, you know, this is kind of a 30-year anniversary. The fans, you know, don't leave them wanting more. Just give them, give them more than they want. Let's just take out all the shaky camera moments and just string it together as one stream of consciousness. And I did a, an intro for it and a, and a few little pieces in between to kind of fill in the gaps. And uh, it's two hours and 15 minutes, and it's all on that disc. And then I also, like I said, do a commentary on that just to fill in more blanks. Plus, there's a commentary with myself. Bring Stevens and Sergey Hassanitz, the writer, on the feature. And also there's some other interviews. I mean, the, the disc, the, the Blu-ray disc is jam-packed, full of stuff. And it is the definitive uh, uh, Blu-ray for this movie. But the most important thing it is from the original camera negative, it's never looked better. And it'll never look better. I mean, it's beautiful. So definitely uh, get your hands on that Blu-ray. I'm really proud of this one. Was there ever any talk of doing a follow-up to Sorority Babes? Not really. I think, uh, you know, obviously we introduced a crazy character because he kind of survives at the end. Spoiler alert. No, not at this point. I mean, I, who knows? We'll see, we'll see how all this disc does. But if it does really, really well, I'm sure that um, Charlie will come up with something <laughs> because he's always very entrepreneurial that way. Do you have a few minutes? Can I ask you about another one of your films? Sure. I wanted to know a little bit more about the making of Little Miss Innocence. Well, that's a very interesting movie. I rarely talk about my early love stories, Michael, but uh, I will digress and uh, and talk about them. I worked for a, a producer when I was first start, when I left um, being a craft service and PA. I said I cannot wait to work my way up to director. So there was an industry in the San Fernando Valley that was extremely active, and there was a lot of people in mainstream that that worked in that industry under assumed names just to you know make a living. 
as I said, I like to earn while I learn and uh, met a lot of producers in that business. And when, it was back when we were shot on film, you know, learned how to operate the camera, load the mags, work the Nagra, uh, do post sound, uh, dealt with every lab. I mean, it was really just an amazing education for about a year. One producer I worked for named Terry Legrand, uh, I had a script that I wrote uh, for one, and uh, he let me direct it. And I became one of the busiest directors in that genre for a couple of years. I was doing probably at the least two movies a month, sometimes four. I worked nonstop. And one of the producers I worked for was a man named Chris Warfield, who's no longer with us. Chris was a very interesting producer. He had been in the business since the 1960s. In the 80, early 80s, late 70s, he got glaucoma and became literally blind. And he needed a script supervisor to help him direct his movies. So I was his eyes. He directed a movie called Sounds of Sex, and I would block out the scenes on the palm of his hand, showing them how I'd have the actors do the scenes. This is back in the 35 millimeter days. He had a uh, there was a lot of people in that business that um, Buck Flower was the production manager. Uh, Buck went by C.D. LaFleur. Buck is no longer with us. I don't think he would mind me uh, in the heavens reminding people that he had a very interesting uh, past. That was the producer, Chris Warfield, who said, David, I made a movie back in the 70s that I did really well with called Little Miss Innocence. I'd like to remake it. Why don't you just start directing these movies? And I said, well, you know, I'm happy to be your script supervisor. I'm happy to put it together. But, Chris, you're a really good director. As a matter of fact, he was one of the best directors I've ever worked with. And he was clinically blind. <laughs> but he was a visionary, if you can believe that. And I, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to direct anymore. There's this newfangled thing called a video camera. And I go, oh, are you saying you want to start shooting on video? And he goes, well, the market right now is strongly in the video area. And he went down to the CES show in Vegas at the Aladdin, which had the big adult expo. There was a line around the block. You know, you know, Sony had nobody in front of it. But the adult video section was lines around the block to sign with all the stars and stuff. And he goes, I think there's a market there. If we can make him for a price, you can do one a month for me. So we decided to start remaking some of his movies. And uh, one of which was Little Miss Innocence, which I shot in two days. At Jack Margolis's house in the Pink Mansion, Jack Margolis wrote films like Linda Lovelace for President. And I don't know if Jack's around anymore, but he used to rent out his big Pink Mansion for movies. We shot it up there in, I think, about two days, I think two and a half days. Uh, it turned out pretty good. It was a much sassier version than the original 70s softcore. But, um, yeah, that was it. It was a remake. And the thing is, is Chris Warfield actually sang the theme song. We used the theme song from the his original 70s version in our 80s version, and it's a little old crooning, you know, piano-playing, drunken beer bar kind of song. But it's a nutty movie. And But I got to work with Eric Edwards and people like that. That was my experience. So, I again, I was directing a lot of movies back then. And like I said, I it's not that I don't feel comfortable about talking about my early love stories. It's just, you know, I've made 120 movies since then. And I directed probably about 80 adult movies. And in those three years, I made a lot of money. And I really learned while I earned. I learned how to be efficient. I dealt with all the vendors and labs and equipment. And I learned so much. Setting the subject matter aside, it's the same thing. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's 80 minutes, and you have to deliver it to a distributor. And back then, you had to have storylines because the films had to have social redeeming value. So, And I was always interested in shooting the storyline stuff, the acting, all that kind of stuff. The meat and potato stuff are, are what they used to call the commercial scenes 
were very boring to me and we would get it done and I would move on to more storyline stuff. So I was, that's probably why I worked so much is because I always tried to deliver a movie, whether I had a day or two or three days at the most to make these movies. Um, I always try to make them look like a real movie. At least I tried. But again, I was very young. I mean, I started directing those films when I was 21 years old. We actually talked a lot about Little Miss Innocence, both the original and your version of it, on an episode that we did recently about Knock Knock and Death Game. It's very interesting. You know, the editor of the original Little Miss Innocence was Ray Dennis Deckler. It's so odd when you think about it, because it was all the same group of like 12 B-movie guys. Peter Perry, Ray Dennis Steckler, Chris Warfield, Buck Flower, John Hayes, who went by, um, I can't remember what his name was, but all the same guys. And we would jump in this and jump into that industry and bounce back and forth. And uh, I had always done both genres. I did gay and straight because I'm gay and I had no issues with either one. I was happy to work. But uh, it was a very interesting time because it was there was a lot of money to be made. I mean, this is back when a VHS was sold for 80 bucks. So it was a different market. <laughs> you had a recent film that really set the internet on fire for a little bit there, the A Talking Cat film. How did you come to make that one? I decided to do a about a half a dozen, seven or eight family films because at the time, a lot of my international sales reps were saying, Dave, you know, maybe you could do something family oriented. And I had done uh, directed Prehysteria 3 for, for Full Moon Paramount. I had done a few other family-style movies, Christmas Spirit with Alexandra Paul and Maureen McCormick and Judy Landers and uh, people like that. And so I had experimented in the family film, G-rated business. I said, okay, let me let me see what I can do. So I, what was very popular at the time was Talking Animals. So I said, let me just do a, a bunch of Talking Animals movies. So I did a film called... The Halloween Puppy, about a woman's boyfriend turns into a dog by it's a, it's a kind of a Christine DeBell was in it and Eric Roberts, and then I thought, well, there's not a lot of movies. There was also a lot of lot of talking dog movies, but not a lot of cat movies. And I just thought, well, you know, I seem to see more cat videos on on Facebook than dogs, so I think there's a market for a cat movie. So you know, I so I went to um, the writer Andrew Helm and I said, look. I got to make a movie about a talking cat. So he wrote, it was called The Human Whisperer, was the name of the script, The Human Whisperer. And um, we cast uh, Johnny Whitaker from Family Affair. That was my first film with him. I was a big fan of his when I was a little boy. Christine DeBell, who I was doing a series of films with, I kind of brought her back into the business after she left for about 20 years, 25 years. And I brought her back and gave her about five movies in a row uh, just to kind of. Yeah, just trying to get her career going again. I mean, she had been on Playboy, the cover of Playboy twice. Uh, she was quite something uh, back in the day, and she is a lovely woman now. And uh, I adore her, and she's a good friend. But um, I brought her in, and then I I, I was going to do the, – the cat talking was going to be probably like a kid or something, you know, because I thought it could be fun. And then I, it was the la- weirdest thing. Uh, we edited the movie, and we were getting ready to record. I go – I wonder what Eric is up to. Because Eric is, was my neighbor. He only lived a few blocks from me, and he was doing quite a few films for me. And so I called up Eliza and Eric's agent, uh, Peter Young. I said, well, say, what's Eric doing this afternoon? And they go, well, you know, he works a lot, but he happens to be home. I said, well, I'm doing this kid's movie about a talking cat. Can I just email the script over, and I'll come down with the microphone and the computer, and, you know, we can have Eric do the voice of the talking cat. I said, sure. So I went over. 
And I forgot the microphone for the camera. And Eric was only going to be there for like an hour or half an hour. So I said, if I better get this done, I'll just have Eric Roberts as the voice of the talking cat. So I, I kind of said, so he's reading right up the page. And I got my camera set up. And I didn't have a microphone. So I had to use the microphone on, the, on my video camera. So I tried to get that really close to him. And it didn't sound so good. But he went ahead and just read the lines wild. We cut them all in. Movie comes out. It was something. And people just went crazy for it. Netflix took it, which was really exciting for me. It did well on Amazon. I mean, it's that movie is a phenomenon. I mean, it's it became, like you said, an internet uh, sort of sensation. And because it is so over the top. And that's really what those family films needed to be. Because there was, you know, the family film, kids movie business is a very flooded business. A lot of but there's a lot of content out there. So I wanted to do something with names and a little bit more zany and over the top and kind of ridiculous because the more over your top, over the top you get, you really, I mean, that internet social media keeps that movie alive and kind of creates a, a you know, an awareness because, you know, there's like a hundred, 200 movies coming out a week. So I was really pleased with the success of that film. You know, I shot that movie in three days. You know, I'm really happy with it. I think it's a hilarious movie. It, I didn't realize how ridiculous it was until I saw it again a couple of years later. And I went, my God, this movie's nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I think it, I'm not sure if it's on Netflix. It was a two year license. I'm not sure if they're renewing it or not, but very, very crazy movie. But look, I mean, look, I mean, Christine DeBell and Johnny Whitaker and Eric Roberts. I mean, you know, and a talking cat and that damn cat. I, that cat, you know, I, I use the same animal trainer all the time. And so I go, I need a cat. They go, he goes, Dave, I got Duffy. Was it Duffy? Not Duffy. Duffy was the character name, but the real one was called called Stinky or something. I can't remember the real name of the cat. Dave, don't worry. We've been training this kitten since it was a little – we've trained this cat since it was a little kitten. This thing is great. Well – the cat showed up and it just was not happy. Somebody would, you know, drop a pin in like, you know, Fresno and the cat would jump and run away. So I had to shoot around it. And, and then Johnny comes up to me on the first day and says, Dave, when I was on Tom Sawyer, I worked with a lot of cats. I mean, a lot of, a lot of animals, the animals love me. When I was on family affair, we had Sigmund of the sea monster animals. The animals love me. Watch, I'll do the scene and I'll show that cat exactly how much it's loved and it's not going to be a problem. So watch this. Go ahead and roll camera. I rolled camera. He walks up to the cat. The cat's like, rah, rah. <laughs> just <laughs> almost attacks him. It's just like, <laughs> it's the scene on the patio by the patio. For, it's like the cat just hated everybody. So what I did was, is I shot the movie out in three days, all the principal photography and tried to do as many shots with the cat before the cat would take off. And I went back for another half a day at the house and I shot just, it was just me, the cat, the trainer and the camera and one assistant. And we did all the stuff where there was not a lot of people around, which got a little people, you know, got the cat, which just was really aware of just people and was just freaking out. So we tried our hardest and we treated the cat as much as we could, but it was a nightmare, but we got it done and it's the film's a hit. We might make a sequel. Who knows? So a talking pony is not, the sequel to that talking pony was just one of many talking animal movies and uh, talking pony i brought christine back not playing the same character i brought jason font back from uh, power rangers and then i johnny whitaker did the voice for me on that one and um some new kids and um uh the one lead kid james lastovic is now 
it was his first movie when he was 18. Now he's on um, Days of Our Lives. And so, no, the, that film was shot. That was a quick one. That was shot in two days and um, didn't have to make the horse's mouth move, thank God, because we attempted to make the mouth move on a talking cat. But we tried it. It just what we tried to do a CGI thing. But what happened was it just looked so disturbing when the lip flaps were. And so we just put a little black thing. In, and I think in the edit software, you can do a little thing where we couldn't sync it up with the mouth. And so we just kind of had that little black thing. It was like, man, just kind of a, that, that, that didn't work. So we took hell with it. We'll just, she hears his voice. He's talking telepathically or something. So a talking pony is also called a ponytail and it's available at Walmart and all fine uh, retail establishments. So it's, uh, it's quite a, that one's quite a hoot. That one, Santa's Summer House. It was the, the Christmas movie I cast like the Expendables. So you go check that one out. What else did I do? Halloween Puppy. That one, I did one called... Oh, and My Stepbrother is a Vampire, which I'm really happy with. That's with uh, Judson Berza from Survivor, D. Wallace, Lynn Lowry, oh, William McNamara, the Tracy Nelson. I mean, I had the, the, the whole hee-haw gang in that one. I'm pretty proud of that one, too. That one's actually a very cute little movie, and I'm really, really happy with that one. But uh, no, it's been a really interesting... The family films have just taken on a life of their own, which is great, you know? It's so amazing to look at your filmography and see that you have like at least seven films coming out this year. I've been doing about one a month for the past five or six years. I directed a Tom Berenger Western for Lionsgate. Um, I directed a movie called Knock 'em Dead, uh, which was a labor of love, which is a kind of an old manor house murder mystery thriller with an all African-American cast. And it's all star cast. It's uh, Radon Chong and. Anne Marie Johnson, Deborah Wilson from Bringing Up from um, Mad TV, Jack A. Harry, Christopher Judge, Phil Morris, uh, Amarosa is in it, Betsy Russell's in it. So um, that one I'm really proud of. I think that's still on Netflix. Definitely check that one out. It's kind of a silly comedy. Some more horror films. I did a, a whole series of films called 1313, which were really successful. And uh, right now I'm uh, doing a, uh, some films here in Canada um, under a, a it's kind of a it's six movies called the Grimm's Urban Legends. First one is Evil Exhumed, which is a, a mummy movie with uh, Eric Roberts. Just finished um, Asian Ghost Story with Cynthia Rothrock, which is a horror martial arts kind of fantasy uh, action thriller. And um, uh, just right now, as a matter of fact, uh, we're spotting uh, Bloody Blacksmith with Nick Mancuso. Nick was the uh, voice of the killer of Black Christmas. He was a Nightwing, a legendary uh, genre actor. And uh, I start a thriller in a couple of weeks, and then I'm off to L.A. to get my Christmas. I got some Christmas movies I have to make because it's August, and we got to make them in August so they can they can air this Christmas. So it's been a really busy time. I'm just going crazy up, up here and down there, and it's uh, I've got a couple movies on Lifetime right now with Vivica A. Fox. Vivica and I like working together, and so she and I co-produced a, a movie called The Wrong Child, which is airing on uh, uh, Lifetime right now, and I also have The Wrong Child. Uh, and the, that's the wrong child, the wrong roommate out with, uh, with, uh, Vivica, Eric Roberts and a few others. So I just, it's, I just, I like to keep working. So it seems like it. Yeah. You seem like a pretty darn busy guy. <laughs> well, I do have four films coming out in, um, for Halloween, October 1st, um, the evil exhumed mummy movie with Eric Roberts comes out as well as Asian ghost story and teen warlock. Teen warlock is uh six, six, six teen warlock actually is with, Hillary Shepard and Jason Font from Power Rangers uh, are in it. That's kind of a teen comedy. And then I also have um, 
um, sorority slaughterhouse coming out. That's with Eric Roberts as the voice of a killer clown doll in a sorority. So I'm really proud of that one. It's very funny. So I've got those four titles coming out for Halloween. So it'll be on all the usual services, uh, iTunes, Amazon, uh, places like that, and of course on DVD. So uh, we're just getting ready to deliver to the, uh, deliver those four to all the platforms. We'll be launching those four movies on a hundred in 109 countries at once. It'll be my first sort of worldwide footprint with a day and date across 109 countries. So we'll see how it all plays out. But uh, there's you can find out more about the titles at rapidheart.com, which is my website, R-A-P-I-D-H-E-A-R-T.com, Rapid Heart. And I kind of keep up with all my crazy goings on. I mean, I'm, I'm working in all the genres. Mike, I'm working in all the genres. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm amazed. Like, are you out there tweeting about this stuff as well? I mean, it, you can find me on Twitter at David Dakota uh, on Twitter. Um, I'm on I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Tumblr, Google, all the every. I'm pretty much Rapid Heart Pictures is the company, and uh, you can pretty much find me on all the social media. And I've got a, a Roku channel now, Rapid Heart TV Roku channel. You can find us on Roku. You can find it's a free channel. It's got all the makings of and trailers and tons of content on my Roku on the Roku channel. You can download that for free. And then I've got a YouTube channel which does really well called Rapid Heart TV. So pretty much, if you go in there, you'll find a lot of the uh, different um, sites and you can check out all the trailers of the movies and stuff like that. So. I still, I still even have a Yahoo fan group. So I'm, I'm, I started early on. So I adopted the uh, the new media early on. So I'm out there. It's it's pretty easy to find me. So just Rapid Heart Pictures or David Dakota, and you'll find all the sites, I'm sure, in some search engine. Well, Mr. Dakota, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. You too, Mike. And uh, don't forget uh, to uh, check out the Sorority Babes and the Slime Ball Bowlerama on blu-ray grab it now while supplies last let's keep in touch mike if uh if you want to have another conversation uh you've got my uh, my skype id let's do it again okay sounds great thank you very much sir okay bye
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.